when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Rishi Sunak capped off a turbulent political year in Westminster with tough words and pledges of actions for dealing with the small boat crisis enveloping the UK. This is not what previous generations intended when they drafted our humanitarian laws. Nor is it the purpose of the numerous international treaties to which the UK is a signatory. And unless we act now and decisively, this will only get worse. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, my last in the hosting chair, we'll be looking back at what can only be described as a truly epic period in British politics, with three prime ministers, two conservative leadership contests, countless budgets, one market crash, and dozens of podcasts. I'm delighted to be joined for my last two hours by four comrades who have been a crack part of the Payne's politics team over the last six and a half years. Political editor George Parker, Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard, Chief Political Commentator Robert Shrimsley, and our Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green. And those of you who listened last week will know I am now off to Pastures New. From January, I am taking over the think tank onward as its new director. But have no fear, the pod will be back under a new guise in the new year. But until then, thank you all very much for joining. Well, gang, 2022 in politics, not much has happened. We've just been sitting going through the script about all the things that have happened. And January last year feels like an awful long time ago. So, George Parker, let's begin with Partygate. So the year began with the drip, drip of stories about those rule-breaking gatherings in Downing Street. And at the beginning of January, we had the evening of Prince Philip's funeral, where you had people getting boozed up in Downing Street. Uh, there was a physical fist fight, the suitcase of wine. When you look back on that, it sort of feels like another rage. But really, out of the three Ps that brought down Boris Johnson of Owen Patterson, Partygate, and Pincher, it was Partygate was the one that dominated the beginning of the year. Yes, it wasn't just the lurid events you just described, Seb. It was essentially a question about the probity of the Prime Minister, wasn't it? And the the cover-up, which always gets people in the end, as, as we know. And it was classic Boris Johnson. He'd failed to get a grip on the issue at the beginning. He failed to sit down his press team to work out exactly what had gone on and whether they had a line that they could defend. And the moment they said there were no parties, the skids were under Boris Johnson. It played out over weeks and then months and eventually it led to the events that brought him out. But it was a fatal mistake of Boris Johnson, not just the parties themselves, but the way they tried to cover it up from the outset. Well, Jim Picard, we remember this began with Sue Gray. So the beginning of this year was everyone's favourite secret Whitehall Mandarin doing an investigation into Partygate, and it ended up with something like 500 documents, 300 photographs, 200 security logs, where this long inquiry into what exactly had gone on. And the January was that endless days and weeks of waiting for Sue Gray. You could 
eventually get it on T-shirts, I think. But the political pressure really was building on Boris Johnson at that point, wasn't it? Because you could feel the mood of the party was turning against him. There may potentially be some kind of confidence vote. I have to say, Seb, that it's been such a crazy year. It feels a bit like a quiz that I'm destined to fail without <laughs> without the use of Google and the FT.com archive because yeah. so much has happened. It just points to the fact that so many different scandals were lapping at Boris Johnson's ankles. And it wasn't just Partygate, was it? There was also the whole way he tried to shake up the, the sleaze rules to help Owen Patterson a few months earlier. There was the Chris Pincher thing that I'm sure we'll get onto as well. I mean, Partygate was just part of an accumulation of problems questions about Boris Johnson's probity. And yes, going back over, it does feel a bit like excavating the kind of, why, why did the Phoenician Empire <laughs> implode? Because we, we've had how many prime ministers <laughs> since then? But yeah, the, the Sue Gray report was, of course, a major part of that. And Miranda Green, if we think back to that report, you know, I think if the full Sue Gray report, which eventually came out in May, had come out in January, Boris Johnson would have faced a confidence vote at that moment because it really felt MPs were fed up. They were fed up off the back of Owen Patterson. And at the end of last year, we had the endless videos, but also we had Omicron as well. And don't forget, you know, this is the first Christmas we've had in three years that's been vaguely normal. And at that point, Tory MPs had had to go through all these measures they didn't like, didn't want to vote for. And Boris Johnson came very close to shutting down Christmas last year, but ultimately didn't. And partly that was because Tory MPs were not on sport with that. They said, you know, if you're going to bring in draconian new measures, we will not support them. They brought in masks and testing last December, and they only got it through on Labour Party votes. So again, this shows how the bond between the party leader and the MPs had begun to break. Any administration gets into difficulty when you've got the bunker of number 10 versus the rest of the party, and that's usually what spells downfall. But, you know, the fact that they were partying in the bunker while everyone else was unable to go to their relatives' funerals, you know, looked pretty bad. And I think I probably agree with you about the full Sue Gray report, but I think also what was politically fatal was the fact that the Conservative Party realised that what this looked like was one rule for the public during COVID and another rule for those in Downing Street. And politically, when you've got a party that's sensitive on the issue of kind of protecting elites and looking out of touch, that could be fatal. And so I think in the end, that drip, drip, drip was worsened by that sensation of the political sort of brand damage to the Tory party as partying elites while the rest of the country suffered. I remember going out and doing a load of Vox Pops in Swindon around January and every single person you spoke to was furious about this thing. And I think, Miranda, when you and I worked on the common desk at the FT together, we had a banned list of cliches that could not be used in FT columns. I know what you're going to say. You know exactly <laughs> what I'm going to say here, which was the Ernest Hemingway gradually then suddenly. And that's very much what happened with Boris Johnson and Partygate, that you had this drip of stories, which Boris Johnson's inner circle, George, thought was all about Dominic Cummings. They thought that his acolytes were briefing this story. Do you remember there was talk of a grid of stories they were going to leak out there? It meant that Downing Street could never really get on the front foot about this. And as you said, they set that line very early on that there were no parties and no rules were broken and they could never really get away from that. And that really bedogged him to the very end. But dogged is a great word, Seb, which I think we're going to miss you using. Um, we don't want to put <laughs> that on the band list. We want that on the must-use list. I'm going to use that word, list. but dogs yeah, again. Bedogged. Well, look, it, I think he was bedogged certainly by the spectre of Dominic Cummings. And you could tell the moment that Dominic Cummings walked out of Downing Street the previous November with his box 
under his arm, heading to the bus stop. You had a great intro on this, wasn't it? It was one of your best intros. <laughs> About a box laden full of secrets that he was going to deploy against Boris Johnson. And of course, that is what he has done through his blog and through his Substack accounts and everything else. So that was part of it. But as Jim says, you know, this isn't just a Westminster bubble thing about Dominic Cummings. And this is something that really wound people up. And we'll come on to the by-election station. There's a mythology around Boris Johnson, mainly written by himself, of course, Churchill style. But don't forget, Boris Johnson, by the time of his downfall, was massively, massively unpopular with the public, as evidenced by a series of by-elections where, where they, they lost a series of seats which the nation never lost in a month of Sundays. Well, let's hear briefly from Boris Johnson, which was when the interim Sue Gray report came out in January, we got the first of many apologies. Mr Speaker, I want to apologise. I know that millions of people across this country have made extraordinary sacrifices over the last 18 months. I know the anguish that they have been through, unable to mourn their relatives, unable to live their lives as they want or to do the things they love. And I know the rage they feel with me and with the government I lead when they think that in Downing Street itself the rules are not being properly followed by the people who make the rules. Now, Jim, when you hear that, that was Boris Johnson at his more contrite, but then we get into February this year and the Met Police wake up from their slumber and Sue Gray and her investigation team of about 20 civil servants had been passing information to the Met throughout this process where they thought law-breaking had happened and there was this constant clamour from Labour, from the Liberal Democrats saying, when are you going to investigate? And the Met never did. And then Cresta Dick, who was appearing at the London Assembly, popped up and said, actually, we will start the investigation. Operation Hillman was launched and the Sue Gray report went on ice and it all went into this sort of black box where we didn't know what was going on and it was very frustrating I think for a lot of people and for a lot of MPs because it felt as if it was all coming to a head and then it just sort of dissipated. This has been playing on my mind for five minutes, but have you got the Sue Gray t-shirt? I don't have the Sue Gray t-shirt, but if you do want to find me one, Jim, for my Christmas present, I will wear it for my pyjamas. It was an incredibly difficult decision for the police to make. I mean, it was an acutely politically sensitive thing to do for a police force to actually investigate the sitting prime minister and everyone around him and quite a brave thing to do. But like you say, I think that the the public pressure just became too much for them to withstand. And then the issue of Boris Johnson's contrition, and, and we heard him a second ago sounding vaguely contrite, the thing about it was that he would always sound kind of plausible when he said it, and then he'd pop up at PMQs a couple of days later, basically just rubbishing the idea that he'd done anything wrong and just sounding very much like... It was everyone else's fault and he didn't know about anything and just, just he just turned the whole thing into a whole joke again. So again, I think that did irritate people quite a lot during that period. We saw the full range of Boris Johnson's weaknesses and strengths over that long period, didn't we? The fact that he was still charismatic, he was still a kind of verbose but interesting speaker. He still had reservoirs of deep support within people who'd voted Tory. A lot of the country were, were furious with him. I'd make the one caveat that when you talk to Tory MPs over that period and into the summer, there was a definite kind of demographic split. Some of the blue-collar workers who'd come from Labour and switched across because of Brexit still thought Boris 
Forrest was a bit of a card and we're prepared to give him another chance. It was among a lot of the white-collar, professional, natural, inverted commas, Tories who'd voted Tories all their lives were just starting to basically lose their rag and lose their faith in him completely. And Miranda, things actually got very difficult for the Met Police at this time. So yes, they were doing this very sensitive matter, but Cresta Dick was forced out, in fact. This was following a whole bunch of scandals, including the Charing Cross Police Station, and she explained why she was pushed out by Sadiq Khan. Following contact with the Mayor of London today, it is quite clear that the Mayor no longer has sufficient confidence in my leadership of the Metropolitan Police Service for me to continue as Commissioner. He has left me no choice but to step aside. I say this with deep sadness and regret. And I think, Miranda, sort of policing and trust in policing has been a consistent event throughout this year. I mean, the reputation of the Met is pretty much in tatters. But Cresta Dick's departure, of course, which was intrinsically linked with Partygate and many other issues, was very contentious. There was later an inquiry by Sir Tom Windsor, the independent inspector, who basically said Sadiq Khan had acted inappropriately. And Sadiq Khan went quite Boris Johnson, in fact, and started attacking Sir Tom Windsor, saying that, in fact, his report was biased and was not actually the case. But it doesn't sort of feel to me as if the Met's in a better place now and if there's if the trust has been restored in policing. Listening to Jim saying that the gamut of the strength of weaknesses of Boris Johnson were on display during those last weeks of his premiership. Actually, you know, I think this year has shown the full gamut of the strengths and weaknesses of the British Constitution and of our whole system of public life, really. Because if you think about it, I mean, we all talk the whole time about Peter Hennessy's famous phrase that our system of government in the UK depends on the good chap theory, which is there aren't really that many checks and balances. So you're trusting people to be a good chap. And obviously, women can also be a good chap. And chap in S. the end, chap S. And in the end, it was felt really to not potentially be a good chap and was moved on and shuffled off. Even now, there are voices in Parliament strongly resisting the last stages of the inquiry into Boris Johnson's behaviour and whether he in fact misled Parliament. But even the rules around what the consequences of misleading Parliament are, are open to interpretation. Mm. So we've kind of had exposed over 2022 the gaps in our system where the constitution doesn't necessarily stand up to pressure. I mean, in the end, obviously, Boris Johnson had to go, so it kind of does show that it worked in the end. But those pressures have been very visible, and I think the Metropolitan Police is actually, you're quite right, one of those institutions which has sort of visibly lost public trust. Now, at the end of February, January into February, George, Boris Johnson tried a little bit of a fight back, and you've probably forgotten this, but there was, do you remember the Office for Prime Minister when they announced they were going to change the structure of Downing Street to deal with the fact there was not good support structure. Was this a reset? This was one of the many resets we had in 2022. Was Operation Big Dog or was that a different one? Big Dog was (laughs) founded at the end of February. We'll come on to Big Dog in a moment. Very important detail here. Big Dog was bedogged, I think. Exactly. Now, at this point in February, you had a new chief whip that Chris Eaton-Harris came in. Jacob Rees-Mogg was moved out to become Brexit Opportunities Minister. Boris Johnson announced they were going to create the Office 
to Prime Minister because the interim Sue Gray report had highlighted big problems, which I think still exist and are actually justified about how Downing Street works. And it didn't really do much good at this point to really save him. But also we should note here, of course, there was a new deputy chief whip appointed at that point, which was Chris Pincher, which became very significant later. Those reforms of number 10 seem to have disappeared somewhat. I've not heard much about them since then. Well, until you mentioned them, I've totally forgotten about them, to be honest. So <laughs> the thing about these resets, as Miranda points out, I mean, there were resets every six months. And the idea that Boris Johnson would learn his lessons, he'd bring in a new team and they changed the way they do things. It was complete rubbish. He was never going to change. Of course, he was never going to change. When he was mayor of London, it did work. He was able, able basically to delegate to a series of deputy mayors who were competent and he just made, went around making speeches, making everyone feel good. But it's different as prime minister. You've actually got to get your fingers dirty. You've got to get through the red box. You can't wing it in the way Boris Johnson was doing it. You can have as many people around him as you like, but the fundamental problem was the principal who was Boris Johnson. And around the same time as the reset, of course, there was another Boris Spalkin, which was obviously the way that he responded to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which did present him in a much better light. He had a very clear moral view on it. He had a clearer view on it than many of his European counterparts. And that, I think, bore him some political breathing space because he did respond exactly correctly. And I think he deserves some credit for that. And this is obviously the first time I'm going to mention the fact that I have written a very good book on this topic, available in all good bookshops at the moment, The Fall of Boris Johnson. And Jim, have you written the book? I haven't mentioned that at all, Jim. But the Ukraine thing was obviously, I think, when the history of Boris Johnson is written, he will want that to be one of the things he's positively remembered for. And I think George is right that, you know, very early on, Boris created this relationship with Vladimir Zelensky. And I think it was kind of, they could both be useful to each other, that Zelensky needed someone who was fully behind him in the West, who was in NATO, who could get the weapons and the training and the kit. And on the other side of it, Boris Johnson wanted his Churchillian moment. And I remember when I interviewed various people in the defence world for the book about that, they said, you know, Boris was so much more engaged on this than anything else. And he said when you had the maps out, he knew the towns, he knew the rivers, he knew the lines. He was sort of getting this Allen Brooks style about how you run a government. It is remarkable that if you look at what people in Ukraine have always felt about Boris Johnson, far more positive than within the UK. Do you think he gets enough credit? And there's also a view of some people as well, and I think many Labour MPs I've spoken to this year often say they think it was very cynical, and he used it just to prop up his faltering political position. What's your thoughts on all that? In a sense, it doesn't matter whether it was kind of moral purity that led him down that path, or whether it was a, a form of narcissism and grandstanding. You know, the end result, I think, around this table, we can all agree, was a moral and the right thing to do. The question of whether the public appreciate it, which public... The Ukrainian public, 100% yes. The British public, I suspect if you focus groups, you'd get a sense that people agree that it's probably the right thing to do, but they worry about the consequences for the British economy, for their jobs, for their energy bills, and all the rest of it. He was right at the forefront of the action. There were specific things where Britain did lead the field. I think on financial sanctions, we pushed it very hard first. We sort of corralled other world leaders to do the same thing. And I remember being on duty on the Sunday where Liz Truss first mentioned the idea of oil sanctions or efforts by the West to, to buy less Russian oil. And, and at the time, no one in Brussels or Washington was talking about it. She was Foreign Secretary, of course, at the time. She she was ahead on, on that point when other people weren't thinking about it. Well, let's hear Boris Johnson speaking just after the Ukraine invasion happened at the end of February. And again, this speaks to that Churchillian thing of rhetoric to try and rally behind the cause. The atrocities committed by Russian troops in Bucha, Irpin and elsewhere in Ukraine have horrified the world. Civilians massacred, shot dead 
with their hands tied, women raped in front of their young children, bodies crudely burned, dumped in mass graves or just left lying in the street. The reports are so shocking and so sickening. And when you hear that Miranda again, it shows a sort of window into what could have been a quite different Boris Johnson premiership. And it's one question that I've wrestled with this year, and I think we probably all have, which is, how did he get this one thing so right? It's very interesting. I absolutely agree. Probably it's to do with seeing Britain's role in the world as important, which is something that all prime ministers of the UK from both parties do, and some overestimate our importance in the world. But it was a moment for Boris Johnson to show that the UK would take a very, very clear moral stand and a practical stand, as you know, with important initiatives to combat Russian aggression, financially, etc. But when you were sort of talking about his popularity in Ukraine and that bond he forged with Zelensky, I was thinking, oh, that's interesting, because actually, do you remember Tony Blair over Kosovo? There were lots of babies born in Kosovo in the years after called Tony, and there are Tony Blair streets in Kosovo. And this thing where the prime minister of the country decides to give Britain an important role intervening in a moral question in Europe they see it themselves as a defining moment and hopefully they hope the history books will also say the same thing. It's probably one of the only moments you would compare Boris Johnson and Tony Blair, but I think there is something going on there. And of course, now under Keir Starmer, NATO is again popular with the Labour benches, Mm. right? Because under Jeremy Corbyn, that whole left anti-NATO strand of opinion had the upper hand. There aren't many 19-year-old Tonys in Iraq though, are there? No, indeed, Jim. Get political for No, no, indeed. Now, George, obviously, this sort of did move away from Partygate. Boris Johnson had something else to talk about. And I think the Tory poll ratings did recover a bit when Ukraine was dominant in March and April. But ever since the Partygate scandal started in December, the Tories have always been behind in the polls, and that has grown as the events unfold this year. You could see people, I remember Charles Walker, the veteran Tory MP, kind of saying, Boris has turned it around, he's now got this much more important thing. And Ukraine became very important in the coming months as he was fined by the Met Police and as the leadership challenge came, because you could see people, his outriders saying, we can't get rid of Boris because Ukraine is too important. This fight is too central to our values. They said it was all, of course, about cake and and sandwiches and surprise birthday parties, whereas you said earlier, it was actually about the much more germane Mm. issues of morality and truth and that sort of thing. Yeah, I don't think um, foreign policy tends to be the determinant of the success or otherwise of a prime minister or a party. So... In the end, it's not that surprising that the Ukraine crisis, to be cynical about it, didn't save Boris Johnson's career because in the end, people don't care enough about foreign policy. Also, the argument you can't change a leader during a crisis or during a war is obviously manifestly not true. In fact, we repeatedly change leaders during crises and think back to John Major or well, Winston Churchill succeeding Chamberlain or Lloyd George in the First World War. In fact, that's the norm rather than the exception, isn't it? So I don't think that saved him at all. And in the end, the war in Ukraine, of course, stored up other problems. So it was a faraway war, which obviously had huge economic implications for the UK, which be dogs to use the phrase of the day, both Boris Johnson and his successors as well. Most notably, of course, Liz Truss, who we'll come on to in a moment. 
Now, in April and May, domestic politics returned in quite a big way when Boris Johnson was fine. And while the Ukraine thing was going on, George, you and I had all these conversations with various people in Downing Street who said there's no chance of him getting fined whatsoever. These were all work events. We've got very expensive lawyers who can set out all these justifications about why he was there and it was part of leadership and duty. That all came crashing down on April the 12th when the Prime Minister became the first Prime Minister to have broken the law within office. This is how he responded. On the 12th of April, I received a fixed penalty notice relating to an event in Downing Street on the 19th of June 2020. I paid the fine immediately and I offered the British people a full apology. And I take this opportunity on the first available sitting day to repeat my wholehearted apology to the House. As soon as I received the notice, I acknowledged the hurt and the anger. And I said that people had a right to expect better of their Prime Minister. Well, Jim, when you hear that again, another apology on Partygate, another indication of contrition from Boris Johnson. But the fine was still quite a shock when it came. And the actual event he was fined for, which was on the 19th of June 2020, was the most surprising one, actually, in some ways. And I know that when Sue Gray heard about the fine, she was very surprised, in fact, because there were other events where there was more alcohol, there were much more what you and I would call a party, even more so than this podcast today. But that event was him a surprise birthday party with cake in a Tupperware box. And the photograph that was released was him handing a can of Estrella, a Simon Case laughing and some Marks and Spencer sandwiches on the table. And we've never really got to the bottom of why that was the event he was fined for and not for the others he attended. It looked like a pretty rubbish party, the one, the one he got the fine for. Um, you obviously go to better parties. The thing about Boris and the parties was that the, the most kind of venal ones where there was booze being spilled up the walls and and the staff there complained about it and were o- overlooked and a swing was broken, that kind of thing. I don't think Boris Johnson was at those parties and possibly didn't know about them. And therefore, the public view that they were all partying like crazy and pouring wine all over the walls was a bit unfair. I think politically, what kind of saved Boris's bacon slightly at that time was that it was interesting, the way Rishi Sunak had been behaving in the lead up to that was he'd been kind of quite moralistic about it and refusing to support Boris Johnson. And just by the process of what he didn't say, made it quite clear that he took took a morally superior view on this. So when he got a fine as well for being at one of these non-party parties, that kind of shot the fox of, of Rishi Sunak on that point. By the way, an important thing, I've just Googled bedog, and it turns out that bedog is to call a person a dog. So I think we've been using bedog instead of bedevil. Anyway, just a small intervention there. Well, dogs are not the devil for anyone who (laughs) listens to the podcast and and likes dogs. Um, But Miranda, the fine was obviously a big moment in the... Johnson-Sunak relationship, and I think we reported at that time that actually Rishi Sunak spent seven hours deciding whether to resign or not. Now, he had actually thought about resigning in December when the first Partygate stories came, and as Jim was saying, he took this very moralistic view, and if people in Rishi Sunak's camp deny that, we point out to them it was December, they registered readyforrishi.com, which is normally an indication. I remember when I asked someone about this in his camp, they said, people register websites all the time, which is one of the worst spin lines I think I've ever heard. But 
at that moment with the fine, Sunak really did think about going at that point. And it wasn't just the fine. He was obviously unhappy about the national insurance levy, which was to pay for health and social care spending. He didn't want that. It was very clear. He felt that raising taxes was a bad idea to help better fund the NHS. But he did stick around. But from that sort of fine onwards, it felt as if their relationship just was not functioning. And George and I, we were getting much more blue-on-blue blue fire from both sides that Sunak's camp was saying Johnson was lazy and hopeless and wasn't fit to be prime minister. Johnson's camp said Sunak was a rich, entitled billionaire, all that kind of stuff. It wasn't just the substance, though, was it? It was the serial evasions of Downing Street, I think. And so these particular moments, as we've already said, you know, gradually then suddenly, different members of the cabinet had their kind of tipping point at different moments. And then, of course, it all came to a head with the kind of slew of resignation letters right at the end, where, of course, you know, Liz Truss and Ben Wallace were able, I think with quite a lot of justification to say that because they were handling an international crisis, they would not be resigning from the government. That Sunak relationship, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, when Sunak did finally resign after the Chris Pincher affair, the resignation letter had all of these different reasons in the letter, Mm. which made it sound ever so slightly incoherent, but did bring out the fact that towards the end, there were also huge disagreements about the direction of the government and about economic policy, which again undermined Boris Johnson's position politically above and beyond the crisis of probity that we've been talking about. At the time, George, we were kind of saying, you know, it's Boris, he's never going to go anywhere, he survived scandal after scandal, but with retrospect, the fine was the moment where the end kind of began at that point, because he'd always kept saying there were no parties, there were no rules broken, and here's the Met Police saying, you broke the law while you were Prime Minister, so it kind of proved very clearly that that happened, and around this time, the House of Commons voted to open up a inquiry into whether Boris Johnson had misled the House, and this is obviously going to have big consequences in 2023, for his future aspirations. And Downing Street had another failed attempt to try to stop that inquiry. The Prime Minister, I think he was in, was he in India? Were you there with him in mm. India um, on a trade junket? Yeah. And they tried to undo this previous inquiry. They failed. That inquiry has not started, but fundamentally MPs are going to hold Boris Johnson in a kind of pound shop January the 6th style hearings to quiz him on all of the parties, all of this detail, going over all the questions about whether he had misled because he knew the parties were going on. And we then got the full Sue Gray report, which by this point we sort of knew all the details of it, but it did just expose how bad things were and just the complete lack of grip at the centre of government on actually running the country. Yeah, it was kind of the cold, icy prose of Sue Gray, I suppose, which brought some of it home Though some people felt that she in the end pulled her punches and she didn't, for example, launch an inquiry into what some people thought was probably one of the most egregious parties, the one that was taking place, the so-called ABBA party taking place in the Downing Street flat. But nevertheless, you know, that did identify a complete breakdown of management, moral integrity at the heart of government. And people often said you couldn't imagine this happening under Theresa May's premiership. And of course, that's entirely true. And after we saw the Sue Gray report, we had yet another round of Boris Johnson saying that he was going to learn the lessons, he was going to reset things. And of course, that didn't happen. And it wasn't very long before the next scandal came along, which we're about to talk about, the Chris Pincher scandal, which revealed yet again that he just hadn't learned the lessons. He hadn't got a grip on things. He didn't establish what the facts were, tried to bluster his way through. And in the end, it all blew up in his face. 
Before we get to Chris Pinch's affair, we had the confidence vote, which was after the first two gave up and after the fine, those letters, the famous letters that we've spent far too much this year trying to guess how many of them are actually in there. I would say reported, but I think guess is probably a more accurate description of it. And the moment that really tipped it over was this at a service at St Paul's Cathedral for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Now, in that slightly grainy moment there, Jim, you can hear cheers, but also some boos. And there was some debate whether there were more cheers than boos. The Cultural Secretary, Nadine Dorries, said there were more cheers. You'll be surprised to hear, but both, I think, the BBC and ITV picked up a lot of booing. And these were not, to quote Suella Barverman, tofu-eating North London Guardian Easters. These were people who'd camped out on the pavements for several long days to see the royal family and the, the great and good of the British state. And many Tory MPs I spoke to over that jubilee weekend said that actually crystallised just how unpopular Boris Johnson had become. The booing then led to the confidence letters and from there we hit the vote and 41% of Tory MPs voted against Boris Johnson which was a worse result than John Major in 1995. He was out by the electorate in two years. A worse result than Margaret Thatcher who was out within nine months. A year I should say and a worse result than Theresa May who was out within nine months. And again from the moment that 41% it really fell that was it and it was just a question of when, not if, he was going to go. Yeah, I mean, I think with the benefit of hindsight, it's easy to say that he was fatally wounded then. The problem with history is always what lessons do you take from it? And in politics, you can take various lessons from, you know, the fall of Margaret Thatcher or whatever. But, you know, I've always been struck by the way that Gordon Brown lost the confidence of his party, basically, and he had loads of cabinet ministers resigning, but he was just so determined to cling on that he kept going. And Jeremy Corbyn, in a different way, had 160 out of his 240 MPs telling him to get out, and he just carried on going. And Boris Johnson was not in the mood to call it quits. He wants to keep pressing on, even though you're right, it wasn't a great victory for him. He technically was home and dry. He technically had another year to go before MPs could challenge him again. And at that point, I don't think any of us foresaw how quickly the end would come. Well, if we just hear how Boris Johnson reacted to it, that'll give you a sense of his thinking at that time. I think it's an extremely good, uh, positive, conclusive, decisive result, which enables us to move on, uh, to unite and to focus on delivery. And that is exactly what we're going to do. And final point, George, if we've got to run off to broadcast with a rival outlet. Not, just, as, good, not as good as this one. So. Of course not. After the no confidence vote, things were kind of pretty shaky throughout June. The fact is Tory MPs were not happy. It felt it was quite unresolved business. We had those crucial two by-elections, Tiverton and Honiton uh, in your neck of the woods, the West Country in Wakefield in North England, my homelands. And it felt that both ends of the Conservative coalition were being pulled apart by the fact of how unpopular Boris Johnson was at the so-called red wall of former Labour heartlands, they were abandoning him, and the blue wall of traditional Tory heartlands, they were abandoning him. And then we also lost in that period, just as a, an, an aside we'll probably forget, Lord Christopher Geit. Remember him, the former independent advisor on ministerial interests. He resigned over steel tariffs. Clearly a very big <laughs> issue that this well, year. Well, remember, I think that will definitely no be a one. trivial pursuit question in years to come. Yet well, to be replaced, though, we should mention. Well, yes, right. exactly. Very significant true. for property of government. Well, the thing is, if you lose a confidence or you survive a confidence vote with four out of ten of your own MPs deciding you're not suitable to be Prime Minister. It's not a great platform which to go to the voters and say, can you put another Tory MP back in to support Boris Johnson? So you saw with spectacular effects, 
less so in Wakefield, where the Labour Party won a convincing victory, but not a spectacular one. But in Tiverton and Honiton, where there was a 24,000 Conservative majority, it had been Conservative all the time I've known Tiverton, and for it to be overturned in such a spectacular fashion, that spooked the party. They'd already had a series of defeats to the Liberal Democrats, including in Chesham and Amersham and North Shropshire. But that one, I mean, that seat was a solid Tory seat, as you can imagine. And that sent shivers through the whole blue wall, if you want to call it, a certain, the southern belt of blue Tory seats, and set the scene ready for the downfall to come. With which, Seb, I'm sorry I've got to dash off, but good luck in your next endeavours. Thank you, Josh. See you on the other side. Well, now let's pick up our Canter Food 2022 with Robert Shrimsley, who's joined our merry panel for this. So we've just come to the end, Robert, where we, um, where the Tories have lost those two by-elections and the mood in the party is don't let anything else go wrong. And what goes wrong is the Chris Pincher affair that he was, as we mentioned, installed as Deputy Chief Whip in February in the efforts to prop up the Johnson government. And he goes to the Carlton Club in St. James's and essentially, allegedly sexually harasses a young Tory researcher who's there. The following day, he has to quit as Deputy Chief Whip and then Boris Johnson dithers for a while and eventually removes the Tory whip from him. But this then feeds into the very last few days when we saw the resignation of Sajid Javid, Rishi Sunak. Why do you think they messed up the response to Chris Pincher so badly? Well, for the same reason they messed up the response to everything else so badly, which is the standard default position, is to see if you can get away with things before you go and look at what the actual truth of the pattern is. Possibly there's also a degree of forgetfulness about what he did and didn't know. You see this all the way through. What really does for him with as we get to the sort of the final days is not so much the offence of having put Chris Pincher back into government, but of sending his ministers out to defend him with things that aren't true. And they, so they get sent onto the radio, they parrot the line that they've got from Downing Street, which supposedly has looked into it. And what? Lo and behold, 10 minutes later, they find out that in fact, it's not correct. So they're made to look chumps. And this has happened all the way through the Boris Johnson regime. And so it's the final straw. It's not the event in itself. It's just the one too many. And it became the final straw for Sajid Javid, who was then health secretary, who was one of those ministers who was often put out on the morning broadcast round to defend the government. And he essentially decided he had enough. And in his speech, which I think strived to be the Jeffrey Howe of the era, but maybe didn't quite get there. But this is what he told the House of Commons on why he'd had enough. There's only so many times you can turn that machine on and off before you realise that something is fundamentally wrong. Last month, I gave the benefit of doubt one last time. But I haven't concluded that the problem starts at the top. That is not going to change. I have concluded that the problem starts at the top, and I believe that is not going to change. But Jim, when you hear that, it was quite a moment when Sanjay Javid quit because throughout those final days of Boris Johnson, there was a lot of backwards and forwards with Downing Street and whether they were lying to the press, whether they'd knowingly misled and where things were going. And he resigned at about five minutes past six on the final Tuesday before Boris Johnson quit. We were, I remember being in the press gallery and there was this collective scream and it was like, oh my God, Sanjay has gone. And then just five minutes later, Rishi Sunak went as well. And then at that point, you know, there is a view in Boris Johnson's circle they could have survived 
survived losing Saj, but the combo of Saj and Sunak was, that was it at that point. Yeah, and I remember watching that speech and I think some people have been a bit unkind and, and said it was a bit wooden or in, indeed it wasn't as epic as the Jeffrey Howe moment a generation ago. But I remember listening to it and just thinking, this guy spent a very long time thinking about this. The argument here is very lucid. It's very clear. He's absolutely sticking the knife in and pointing out all of Boris Johnson's failings. And, and those failings we've been clear about for a very long time, about his kind of questionable personal judgment, his sort of reckless lack of preparation, fly-by-night approach, but but also it basically supporting people around him who were loyal. Loyalty was everything. And therefore, if you're a Boris Johnson supporter, you get promotion. And the Chris Pincher thing was literally known about for years in the sense of in 2017, he stood down as a junior web after being accused of, of making this unwanted pass at some former Olympic rower. It was all over the newspapers then. It, Boris Johnson knew about Chris Pincher's tendencies when he appointed him, but he put him in there because he was a Johnson loyalist. And the, and the Sajid Javid point, you've got to wonder whether Sunak wishes he, he went first. They denied that there was any collusion between them over the timing, didn't they? But it, you know, I think Sajid is the one who's going to make the history books for actually precipitating that final decline. So Miranda Green, we then obviously come to the resignation of Boris Johnson. And over the next 24 hours, we had the ridiculous number of ministers who resigned. I remember Sky News had a ticket roll at one point. It was like pound down, weather dreadful. Oh, but look, ministerial resignations have gone up because it was every hour more and more people eventually decided they couldn't stand it anymore. And Boris Johnson eventually decides late that night when he's trying to fill up his government, he can't get ministers to do the job, that he is going to go. Did it surprise you that ultimately when it came to it, he did just decide to resign? You know, he wasn't actually fully heaved out by the 1922 committee or through some constitutional means. Well, there are two key things, aren't there? If you can't find any ministers to any more go onto the broadcasters and defend the indefensible, you've got a problem. And then if you look at the numbers and you look at your spreadsheet or your whiteboard on the wall in Downing Street and you literally can't fill the ministerial posts because so few people are willing to remain as loyal lieutenants of your regime, then you can't run a government anymore. So you are actually confronting the inevitable at that point. I had a great time with those letters because I was doing a literary review of the resignation letters, some of which were pretty flowery and poetic and some of them kind of stuck it to him in a quite merciless way. I can't help thinking that those chaotic last weeks and days, the whole country could have been spared that had the Tory party actually had an obvious successor. Because actually, I think a lot of this, all the processes of going back to the 1922 committee, you know, the endless days of have enough letters gone in or not, if the Tory party had actually been able earlier in the spring or summer to coalesce around an obvious successor, I think it would have happened quicker. And that's why there was this terrible, long, drawn-out death that depended on Boris Johnson sort of in the darkest hours of of the night taking that decision. And then when he decided to go, this is what he said outside 10 Downing Street. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And the reason I have fought so hard in the last few days to continue to deliver that mandate in person was not just because I wanted to do so, but because I felt it was my job, my duty, my obligation to you to continue to do what we promised in 2019. And of course, I'm immensely proud of the achievements of this government. 
And even at that point, Robert, you could feel he was talking like a presidential figure. And in those final few days, he was very much talking about, you know, my mandate, the 14 million people who voted for me. And of course, they didn't vote for him. They voted for the Conservative Party. That's how we work. But it felt as if, you know, he just did not want to give up. But then he eventually sort of did before we went on to the summer leadership contest, which was something lovely to look back on. I slightly disagree with you because I, there obviously was an obvious leadership successor. It's just they didn't want to choose him. Yes, exactly. Um, exactly. Because, so, in fact, Sunak's sort of yeah. credibility had already taken a bit of a knock. Precisely. And therefore, he had not and, become the obvious. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, I mean, I think what we saw essentially was there were two leadership contests. There was the leadership contest as we normally understand it. And there was the real leadership contest, which was the contest to be the candidate of the right who could stop Rishi Sunak. And so you had this huge gallery of characters, some of them attracting really quite substantial votes, which dispassionately, when you looked at, you thought, do you really think these people are ready to be prime minister? And it was a pretty unedifying fight. And which is not surprising, therefore it led to a pretty unedifying government at the end of it. Well, let's listen to a clip from one of the TV debates that took place because the leadership contest began with a cast of, if not hundreds of scores, shall we say, and whittled down to Liz Truss versus Rishi Sunak. And they had a couple of head-to-head bouts, which, as you said, were pretty unedifying and didn't really get anywhere in terms of resolving the country's issues. Are you ready for this? Yes, I am. Yeah, absolutely so. <laughs> Is now the right time to cut taxes? Everybody thinks that putting up taxes at this moment is going to hurt the economy. You can't put up taxes and get growth. If we follow Rishi's plans, we, we are headed Sophie, for can a recession. we really get, you promised me, almost £40 me, you, billion. Pounds. It's not moral to ask our children to pick up the tab for the bills that we're not prepared to pay. In the first two years, when you are Prime Minister, what changes will people see under you, Prime Minister Sunak, on levelling up? manufacturing businesses across the country, what they tell me they need is that they want tax cuts on business investment because they want to invest okay. in more let equipment, me, me, in I need machinery. To, I need to... What I would do immediately is put in new low-tax investment zones with simplified planning so we could get on with building and we could get on with those new projects. I'd keep corporation tax low to attract investment from around the world. Jim, when you listen back to that, actually, those endless debates (laughs) that went on and on, where after about the third week, no one had anything new to actually say within the contest. And Liz Truss had a very simple message that you heard there, and she kept that focus throughout, which is, we're going to cut taxes, we have to cut taxes. And Rishi Sunak said, that's the wrong thing to do. And I remember at the very end of the contest, George and I interviewed Rishi Sunak in Hertfordshire, and he said, I don't know how the markets are going to wear this. And he was proved rather right. But when you look back on the Trust Premiership, what are your thoughts and feelings? When the, the mini-budget invested commas went horribly wrong and the markets reacted and, and all the events panned out, a lot of Liz Trust supporters said, well, we, we didn't have enough time to do any pitch rolling. You know, maybe if we delayed things a little bit, we could have explained it more to the public and explained it all to the markets. But actually, there was a massive load of pitch rolling all through the summer. And the pitch rolling was Rishi Sunak getting across to lots of Tory voters and commentators and people in the markets that £40 billion worth of unfunded tax cuts is a dangerous thing to do. I think apart from Conservative membership who voted for Liz Truss, the pitch rolling only went in one way, which is a lot of us believe that Rishi Sunak was a more compelling argument, and thus it turned out to be. That's the only thing most people, I think, will remember that Tory contest for. I struggled to remember the eight candidates at the beginning. I've just had to Google them, and, and it all comes flooding back, but <laughs> it's been such a, such a crazy summer. Now, Miranda, of course, before we came to the disastrous mini-budget was the most consequential event of this year, of course, which was the death of the Queen, which came just 48 hours 
after Liz Truss became prime minister. And her last act of monarch was to do that transition of power. She was photographed in Balmoral as they did the shaking of hands. And it was then left to Liz Truss to do the tribute to the Majesty. And this is what she said about her very, very long reign. We are all devastated by the news that we have just heard from Balmoral. The death of Her Majesty the Queen is a huge shock to the nation and to the world. Queen Elizabeth II was the rock on which modern Britain was built. Our country has grown and flourished under her reign. Britain is the great country it is today because of her. She ascended the throne just after the Second World War. Soaring oratory there, Robert, from the former Prime Minister. When I actually listened to those words just now, I did find myself thinking, well, actually, Britain isn't the country it is because of the reign of Queen Elizabeth. I mean, I realise they're tributes and you have to say nice things, but A, it's not true. I'm not trying to do the country now, but it's manifestly not a greater country now than it was before her reign because it had an empire before her reign and it doesn't have it anymore. Now, I'm not trying to be pro-empire. I'm just saying, manifestly, when you listen to these tributes, you think, this is actually just rubbish. Someone I that- thought it was all right, actually. I think, just- that, I think the rock on which... Modern Britain is built is not appalling when you consider the massive social change that happened. The thing about Liz Truss, right, is it's the best ever political trivial pursuit set of questions. And there is going to be one, which is under which prime minister did Elizabeth II die? and King Charles III succeeded her. And no one in the future will be able to remember that it was Liz Truss because she was prime minister for such a short time. I remember her. Well, we're scarred in a different way. But, you know, this is such a strange event to have a prime minister for such a short time. And in politics, you get these crazy kind of kamikaze characters who kind of zoom in, in and out of the, that page of the history book. But they're not normally the prime we minister. We normally catch them before they get to office. Exactly. <laughs> and of course, that period was during the Queen's morning was when her economic plans grew and grew until we came to the mini-budget, Jim. And Kwasi Kwarteng, who was, again, very briefly Chancellor of the Exchequer, this is what he told the House of Commons when he was announcing that disastrous fiscal event, as it was called. The Prime Minister promised that we would be a tax-cutting government. Today, we have cut stamp duty. We have allowed businesses to keep more of their own money to invest, to innovate and to grow. We have cut income tax and national insurance for millions of workers. We are securing our place in a fiercely competitive global economy with lower rates of corporation tax and lower rates of personal tax. We promise to prioritise growth, Mr Speaker. They did say that, Jim, but that didn't actually happen. And pretty much there was a wholesale rejection of the fiscal plan by markets and by currency traders as soon as it landed. And what was so striking about it was there was no fiscal forecast. Normally, when you do an event of this scale, you would have the Office for Budget Responsibility setting out how much it's going to cost, how it's going to be paid for. There wasn't that. They'd also sacked Sir Tom Scholar, who was head of the Treasury, who could have helped to shore up and stabilise the government's position. He was gone at that point. And then really appalling communications from the government with no reassurance. They just ducked away from this problem entirely. And then we ended into October with that very weird Tory party conference where we had this new government, we were pretending everything was just going on as it was, and yet everything was collapsing around them. And it was at that conference, the the scrapping of the 45p top rate of tax was jettisoned, and all the other bits of the mini budget just disintegrated. They were shocked by the reaction to their mini budget, because they took the view that while they'd been saying for months that they were going to do £40 billion of unfunded tax cuts. And they'd sort of done a a nudge and a wink that they'd be cutting some government spending in due course that could 
you know, counteract some of that and, and help pay for it. But they obviously didn't do that on the day. Also, as you say, Seb, they started sort of trashing various kind of economic uh, institutions. You know, Sack and Tom Scholar was just part of it. They made it very clear that they were going to take an anti-establishment view on economic matters. And then throwing in those extra policies on the day of scrapping the top rate of income tax and also getting rid of the banker bonus restrictions. And then furthermore, the quasi Quartin comments on the Sunday that he had more up his sleeve just conspired to tip everything over the edge. And it, of course, didn't help that interest rates around the world were going up at the same time. You know, the Fed moved just hours before. And therefore, it just creates this incredible cocktail that explodes in their faces. They were surprised because they were a little bit high on their own supply, as one might say, high on power. And then there was this ragged retreat. Now, at this time, Robert, I also want to mention Labour Party conference because the Tory conference was a very weird event this year and obviously became completely irrelevant as the trust government collapsed. But Labour conference was a very different beast in Liverpool and it really felt as if... The party was ready for power, much more organised event, much more disciplined event. And of course, from the fall of Boris Johnson onwards, we've seen the steady rise of Labour in the polls, of Keir Starmer becoming more and more popular and eventually becoming the person who's on that crucial polling lead of who would make the best prime minister. I mean, it was a very odd conference. And this happens from time to time in politics. You go to a party conference of a party that's not in government and all of the action is somewhere else. And you're just watching slightly detached as things disintegrate somewhere else in in the world. But what was really striking, I mean, I remember going to one of the parties on on the last or penultimate night of the conference, and there had been an opinion poll that came out which gave Labour some enormous polling lead. Was it 20%? Mm, 17. 17%. The Tories were down to 19 points in that poll, I I think. You'd move from one to the other, some of the significant names of the Shadow Cabinet, and the grins, they they couldn't hide the grins. They absolutely believed. I think, to me... That conference was the moment that people in the Labour Party started to believe they could actually win the next election. When you talk to Labour people since then, they're all suddenly consumed by a fear they could blow it again because there's a long time to go. The fear is really palpable among Labour people. But that was the moment, I think, that all of the people around Keir Starmer suddenly thought hang on, we could do this. Now, Miranda, the Tory party, with its typical ruthlessness, moved against Liz Truss because after the mini-budget disintegrated, Kwasi Kwarteng was fired. And then as George and I wrote about in the FT recently, he was landed back from the IMF conference and read on Twitter he'd been fired and then goes in to see Liz Truss and she says, I'm sorry, I don't need your services. And he says, yes, I know, I just read on Twitter. So very odd events. Fun and games, yeah. Fun and games. And then, then Graham Brady goes to see her and says, look, it's over, you know, you've got no support. You know, if you want us to... We can change the rules, we can heave you out, or you could just go. And ultimately, she does just go. And this is what she says on the steps of Downing Street after just 49 days as Prime Minister. And our country has been held back for too long by low economic growth. I was elected by the Conservative Party with a mandate to change this. We delivered on energy bills and on cutting national insurance. And we set out a vision for a low-tax, high-growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. So Liz Truss goes out, Miranda, I think to the surprise of no one, and in comes Rishi Sunak. But it wasn't that straightforward. It could have been Penny Mordaunt or it could have been Boris Johnson. I know, what can you say really about this year? You wait for prime ministers for ages and then three come along at once. The thing is, Rishi Sunak, of course, had already failed over the summer period to convince the Tory party membership 
So he had that slight air of coming back from defeat to try and convince them the second time. But he was blessed in his opponents, shall we say. But I think when you look at the backdrop as well, because of that disastrous mini-budget, the Conservative Party was realising that they were sacrificing the one thing that has always stood them in good stead with the British electorate, which is a reputation for being able to run the economy properly. And so I think the Tory party realised that they had to kind of come to their senses and reject this fantasy economics that Truss and Kwarteng had represented. And even though over the summer they had not really liked the Sunak pitch that much and he was talking a bit too much reality for their liking, the markets had delivered this appallingly severe lesson that you have to actually have plans that add up. Robert's talking about that different atmosphere at the Labour Party conference. If the backdrop to that is the whole nation doing what we normally just do at the FT, which is watching the tickers about the level of the pound and what the bond markets are doing to our ability to to borrow money to fund our government plans, then you've really got a government in economic crisis. And so Rishi Sunak's kind of air of being reasonable and writing the ship suddenly looked more appealing. It's very easy to forget how close Penny Morden got to becoming Prime Minister. You know, in retrospect, she seems like a sort of also ran. But I think Boris Johnson basically making it clear that he might come back from his holiday retreat in the Caribbean galvanised a lot of his supporters to gather something like 100 MPs who were prepared to back him. If he hadn't done that, I think a lot of those people would have got behind Penny Morden and instead... Her campaign lost momentum. She did get pretty close to 100 or maybe at 100 on the, on the Monday morning, but it was, it was basically not enough and she, she called it a day. Things could have been very, very different because we still don't know whether if you put Morden against Sunak with the Conservative membership, which way they would have jumped. Well, ultimately, Boris Johnson did not run. And then ultimately, Rishi Sunak becomes PM by default because, as you said, Jim Penning Morden got about 90-odd names. And I think George was involved in some independent verification of those names to prove this was actually the case. So he becomes PM in November and he stands outside Downing Street with a nice tribute to his predecessor. I'd like to pay tribute to Liz Truss for her dedicated public service to the country. She has led with dignity and grace through a time of great change and under exceptionally difficult circumstances, both at home and abroad. I am humbled and honoured to have the support of my parliamentary colleagues and to be elected as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. I think it's worth noting just how, in all the extraordinary aspects of the, the truss interregnum, as I guess we'll have to think about it, not only was it catastrophic in every respect for her and all the people who believed in her cause. But it was doubly so because the ultimate impact of her government was to embed every single policy ideal that she opposed. So she embeds Treasury orthodoxy by attempting to trash it. She brings Rishi Sunak to power by rubbishing his legacy. Some of the things that she wanted to do, less headlining issues around liberalisation, be around planning or whatever, were quite good ideas, but they're falling too. Well, so, around immigration. Around immigration as well, yeah. that's a very good point. And the extraordinary thing about the trust government is not only the amazing way it implodes, but the way it actually destroys everything it is attempting to achieve and embeds all of the opposite. I don't actually think trust government is quite going to be a footnote in history because I think we're going to be studying it for years to come for its extraordinary impact. Her demise definitely gave Rishi Sunak a much clearer edge of what he stands for because in the summer he didn't look like he stood well, very it's much... Well, great. Talk. I mean, you, the way you want to come to power is as the person the country wished it had. 
oh my God, we made a terrible mistake not picking Rishi Sunak, is a great way for Rishi Sunak to arrive in power. And now, Miranda, finally, it's the last two months of the year, really, things have definitely calmed down after everything we've just been through. That We had the autumn statement where essentially the whole thing was reversed, finally, that Liz Truss did. And then you had the efforts to fill the 70 billion pound black hole, which we devoted many fantastic pieces and podcasts to talk about how that would be done with some very eye-watering tax rises, but also spending cuts put in the future. But the markets accepted it. And life has, in terms of Westminster, has calmed down a little bit since then. We've still got much bigger issues in the country we'll come on to. But I've actually been quite amazed at how much Tory MPs have rallied around Sunak, even though many of them, particularly on the right of the party, do not like Sunak at all, and in private will tell you that. The rebellions and the arguments we've had on planning and on onshore wind about the economic situation, they've not been that serious, and the government's managed to navigate them through. And of course, we'll come on to next year in a, in a minute, but it feels like he's sort of, he's surviving at the moment, which is pretty much the best he could ask for. Well, two months without an existential crisis in the Conservative Party is record-breaking in itself for this year. So that's true. I mean, both Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, Chancellor, they both have a strong kind of school prefect energy, do they not? So, you know, there is a sort of reassuring feeling. Jeremy Hunt was, he was head boy at Charterhouse. You can absolutely tell looking at him, can't you? Was Rishi head boy at Winchester? Good question. It was, was, I think, yes. So there 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 we are. So, even though, if you are perhaps not a Conservative supporter, you wouldn't necessarily say that the right grown-ups are in charge, at least the sort of head boys are in charge, which is sort of reassuring. And also, of course, what happened with the second Tory leadership election, the fact that it didn't go to the membership, this is exposed that the Tory MPs don't actually trust their own members. So in a sense, the Tory leadership now and the MPs are all in it together against their own membership, but on behalf of the country, at least sort of settling things down. They have got enormous problems to deal with, however. You know, there's still war in Ukraine, there's the energy price crisis, there's public services collapsing all around us, there's a wave of strikes over the winter. Pick your crisis as to what might cause them serious difficulties going forward. Yes, because Jim, as we end 2022, I mean, the general sense that Britain is slightly falling apart and not working is completely everywhere, that it feels like the fact we've got all these strikes that are ongoing at the moment, which are disrupting everyone's Christmas. We've been talking about the past couple of weeks, the podcast. You've got the small boat issue, which is dominating a huge amount of time for the Prime Minister, very acutely aware of the potential for human tragedy, but also the impact on the Conservative Party's poll ratings. And it feels at the moment that, you know, the Sunak government has got some, as I said, political stability, but the crises are absolutely enormous. And going into 2023, I think there's big questions about how it's going to tackle them and does it have the plan and the capacity to actually see through any meaningful change before the next election, which we all assume is going to be in late 2024. When we think about Rishi Sunak's prospects for the 2024 election, the things that act in his favour are that he has a kind of youthful energy, he fits the part, he is a much better communicator than Keir Starmer, I would say. And secondly, all the reasons why an awful lot of people hate the Conservative Party at the moment, i.e. Partygate, Boris Johnson's foibles, Liz Truss's mini-budget, as we go ahead, the salience of these will recede somewhat, but every month we, we move away from them. Rishi Sunak can talk about it being a new government. But the things that, the challenges he face 
are absolutely huge, as you suggest. And they are, of course, the wave of strikes, the continuing situation in Ukraine, what that does to energy bills, the fact that the energy bill support is going to have to run out in just over a year, and then trying to extend that would cost an absolute fortune. And then fifth, but possibly biggest of all, everyone's mortgages going through the roof, and in turn, everyone's rents going through the roof. And of course, the boats as well, the small boats you mentioned. If you look at the mortgage situation, and what that could do in terms of accentuating the economic recession we face, there's almost nothing the government can do. I cannot see them finding some sort of scheme to support people's mortgages. Mortgages going through the roof is probably the biggest thing that could do for this government, I think, because it's it's something that cranks up over the next couple of years, and, and we won't see it going the other way for a long time. And finally, Robert, open up your crystal ball for us. Let's look forward to your views on 2023 and what is going to dominate. Because as we said, there's a huge amount of stuff to do and this kind of calm in Westminster won't last. Is it simply just a downward trajectory now for the Conservatives towards the election? Could there be any kind of bounce back? And where do you think things lie for Labour? It's much easier to pose the questions than it is to be sure about the answers. I think there are two issues. Why I pose them. Absolutely. <laughs> For me, there are two big questions which unlock all of the others. So the first is where we're standing by, say, the end of January on public sector strikes. Because there is clear that the, the cabinet, I think, is fairly united about trying to tough this one out. It's a comfortable position for Conservatives. You face down the unions, you hold down the pay bills. So they're intellectually comfortable taking this position. I think a big question is going to be where, how they feel they've done come January. If they think they've faced down most of the worst of the strikes, if public opinion is switching towards them on the strikes, they're going to begin to feel a bit more confident about themselves, a bit more confident in their arguments. MPs will start to feel a bit more confident in Rishi Sunak because although they are sort of behind him, it's very, very shallow support. If he has a good public sector strikes, then he's in a better position as we head towards the May elections, which will also be a big test for him. To me, however, the biggest variable as we head into the second half of the parliament is what Labour can do to attempt to clinch the deal with voters. Because I think we're in a place now where the country has actually decided they're quite ready to get rid of the Conservatives, that they've had enough. What they haven't decided is they're ready to put in the Labour Party. And so, although Starmer has done a great deal to detoxify Labour and to remove all the Corbyn baggage that he's, and he's done a really good job on that and gone far further, far faster than I thought he would be able to do. Absolutely. What he hasn't done is sell himself to the country positively. His pitch is, it'll be okay. You don't have to worry about me. And that's, that's good. That's a start. Has to happen. I don't think he's sold a deal to the country that says, vote Labour and we will make things better because it's absolute hell now. And I don't think there's any sense that voters have a positive energy towards Labour rather than just a negative energy towards the Conservatives. So to me, the question is, can he do that in 2023? If he can, then I think it is downward trajectory for the Conservatives and irreversible. If he can't, then they're still in with a shot. I mean, if you take three of the biggest issues facing at the moment, Labour doesn't actually have any answers. So it doesn't have any different answer on what to do about the strikes in terms of pay settlements. It doesn't any longer have a different energy policy because it did have a windfall tax. The Tory government now has an even bigger windfall tax. And on mortgages, which I was talking about a second ago, Labour has literally nothing to offer at all. I agree with all of that. And all I would add on Labour is that I've picked up this terrible phrase during the World Cup commentary, which I think is very applicable to Keir Starmer's predicament at the moment, which is they seem to lack quality in the final third, which I have come to understand as being unable to actually win under the rules of the game. 
And I'm just going to conclude. It could get very messy. I think the only final thought I will leave agreeing with all that you've just said as well is that I don't buy this idea we are just going to waft towards a general election in two years with nothing else major happening. That Given where we seem to be in the political and economic cycle at the moment, we've had so many events this year we've just gone through that something else is going to happen in the next two years and that will knock all of our predictions off. But for the very last time, George, Miranda and Jim, thank you very much. So I do think, however, before we go, we have one last big news story of the year, the big shock development of the year, which is obviously your own departure, Seb, for the world of Tory think tank. It's actually, it's been a great relief, I think, to many in the country who've been concerned that we haven't had enough journalists in politics. Uh, You know, we've lost Boris Johnson, you know, the the flag bearer of journalism in politics. You know, Michael Gove, you know, could be coming towards the latter stages of his career. So those of us who support the journocracy are obviously thrilled to see that that, that you are going out into the world to to take this forward. And, And as it were, if the ball were to come loose from the back of the scrum, you're there to pick it up. Well, I remember Boris Johnson once said he had as much chance of reaching high office as being reincarnated as an olive. So I could say I have as much chance of success in the public realm as being reincarnated as Boris Johnson. But the question is, do you believe it as much as Boris Johnson believed it? Because he clearly didn't believe it very much. What what are you thinking? You've got a wonderful existence here at the FT, much respected, much liked, going off to the only profession in the world that is viewed more lowly than journalism. What, what, What on earth possessed you to do this? Well, Robert, I've had such a fantastic run of the FT. It's been seven years since I first joined and we've been doing this podcast for six and a half years. And as I may have mentioned a couple of times, I've written two books in that period as well, as well as columns and articles and Must all the rest of reading it. them. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I think my general view on this is, is that the UK faces huge, huge challenges and we've been talking about them and writing about them for a long period of time. And onward, the think tank that I'm going to, it was started in 2017 after the election that Jeremy Corbyn almost won to look at this point of, hang on a minute, on the centre-right, there is a big lack of new ideas, a big lack of thinking. It felt at that point as if all the action was elsewhere in politics. And I think since the five years onward has existed, it's done some very, very good work on everything from net zero to science and technology. Yeah, come on. We're not, we're not, this isn't a sponsorship programme. No, it's not. But <laughs> in explaining why I am doing this, and I think that we've got two years now to the next general election, and as we've just been talking about with our colleagues there are some big gaps about what the Conservative Party is for, what the Sunak government is for. And I think there's a great opportunity for some new ideas. And I think going to onward to do that, to step a little bit away from the day-to-day news, a little bit more brain space to look at some of these bigger issues was just a really exciting opportunity and the opportunity to try and run something. Of course, step... Well, I mean, run something small before you step out and run something larger. I mean, it it is notable that people from onward have, have, have a bit of a track record of going into the House of Commons, the House of Lords or Downing Street. So which of these is your preferred destination? Well, Robert, what I would say is that I've got a fantastic new job and that is my singular focus for the next couple of years as we've, there's not that much time left before the election and that's entirely where I'll be thinking about things that's for the a moment. Tremendous, I can hear you on the Today programme not answering questions already. A tremendous performance. There. I've got another three other variants if you'd like to hear yes, them. Yes, let's as hear your well. three variants. Come on, let's hear the three variants. Well, you, t- you stole the first one, which is that I've already too many journalists in public life and we don't need them all already at the moment. And in all seriousness, I think 
think tank world is something that I've interacted with, you've interacted with a lot. And it does have some similarities with both public life in terms of the House of Commons and also with journalism. And I do hope to keep doing media, to keep writing. I might even still pop up on this podcast occasionally if you ever have me. And I just do think that at the moment, we've not talked enough about ideas in politics that as we've rattled through 2022, it's all just been about personalities and people messing things up. And it'd be quite nice to have a crack through onward to make sure we don't mess things up entirely. You almost walked into it. It was quite nice to have a crack at messing it up yourself. Anyway, I'm sure we're all going to miss you deeply. Well, Robert, on that very cheerful note, that's it for the last time for this episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then please do subscribe and keep subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And as you know, we love positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by the wonderful team of Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. Any podcast is only as good as the people behind the control desk, and Anna in particular has done a wonderful job over the past six and a half years, even when I've turned up late, been very irritating, and lost my place in the script. The sound engineers were the brilliant Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. So that's it for me. Payne's Politics will be back in 2023 with a new name and a new host. But until then, have a very happy festive season, and thank you, as always, for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.